house. No, the right no, house. I did it, get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. An awakening. You want to sleep with me, don't you? I'm a regular person, and you know it. Both spiritual. What about you kiss me? No, Ruth, I can't do that. And sexual. Take my pants off. I think we better phone your mother. I don't think mom's paying him to. You're out of control. You didn't seem to mind last night. From Academy Award winner Jane Campion, director of The Piano. Well, I still alive, and I'm here. Miramax Films presents Academy Award nominees Kate Winslet and Harvey Keitel in an all-out battle of the sexes. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that will ritualistically flay you if you vote for Marcos. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my cult leader, who also gets introduced with Neil Diamond songs, Joe Reed. <laughs> yes. Man, the Neil Diamond that was front-loaded in this movie is some somewhat writes a check that the rest of the movie can't cash. Because I was sort of, when you use two Neil Diamond songs that early in the movie, I'm sort of expecting it to be like a whole Neil Diamond experience the whole way through. And that was not the case. But still... I was Still happy for a really two great soundtrack, though. Also made me reassess like my Neil Diamond thoughts because, of course, like Sweet Caroline is a scourge on the culture. But, well, but like, that's not his fault. That's not his Boston's fault. It's fault. just like the omnipresence <laughs> of it is so oppressive to me. But like yes. <laughs> the the Neil Diamond songs in this movie made me think like wait, is Neil Diamond, like, hot? Is it, like, sexy music? Or is it just Harvey Keitel? No, it's kind of... It's it's the kind of hot where it's just like, well, this isn't supposed to be hot, but so it is a little hot. And it's also, sexy, ugly. He's on a little rebound of being in movie trailers now, because he was... There was, a obviously, the um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood trailer had one of his songs but there was another one recently and now i'm not going to be able to remember it but if anybody listening can uh can remind me on twitter what's the other recent movie trailer with a neil diamond song in it i would be very uh appreciative but anyway i don't want to get too far afield but i also need to hear uh i don't want to get too far afield before we bring in our guests i know favorite guests returning to us because i have to hear her Neil Diamond thoughts as well. <laughs> Coming back to us, uh, our good friend Jordan Searles is here. Yay! Thanks so much for having me back. Welcome back. Uh, we are always uh, thrilled to have you. Um, especially, okay, we did this a little different. Usually we have our guests pick the movie, unless it's like a miniseries or something. This is a movie we knew we wanted to do. We're doing yes. Jane Campion's Holy Smokes. Yes. Holy Smoke today. Holy Smoke. Holy smokes! That's me walking out of the theater. Holy <laughs> smokes! Holy smokes! Um, that feels very Midwestern. And we... Well, that's me. Hi. Um, and <laughs> when we set this, I was like, ooh. When we... Uh, if we talk about this movie, we have to get Jordan on. 
because you are I feel like you are kind of my Jane Campion friend you are at least the person (laughs) who like I kind of credit the resurgence of in the cut in public favor and like we did it in the cut episode before we were friends and I feel like this has to make up for getting you on (laughs) on to talk about Jane Campion because like you have talked about and written so smartly about her work specifically in the cut so like I am excited to talk to you about this movie today. Yeah. I mean, it's also great because I've been working on a review of Power of the Dog that I should have finished a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I went back to watch a lot of her movies, so a lot of them refresh in my mind. And Holy Smoke was a movie that I had, like, I had already rented it and I had already planned to watch it when you asked me. So it was just like, (laughs) oh. That's amazing timing. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> in fact i think i had noticed that you had like logged it on letterboxd or whatever and i was like that seems prescient because like that's interesting that like you had watched it by then and i was just like wait a second does she know somehow psychically that we're gonna have her on to talk about this movie so <laughs> yes i did and i also i i subjected a boy to it love to subject a boy to nice. a movie that makes him uncomfortable sure yes. <laughs> definitely did that <laughs> But yeah, I, Holy Smoke is one of those movies where I I knew that it existed, and a lot of a lot of people don't even know that it exists. And mm-hmm. I had this image in my brain of Harvey Keitel in the desert in a red dress, <laughs> and I couldn't remember anything else except that image. <laughs> Jane Campion and is wh- really the preeminent sexualizer of Harvey Keitel in film i feel like between this and the piano i feel like my two main images of like harvey keitel sexuality are really shaped by jane campion so well there's also bad lieutenant which is like the same time or maybe it was right before a little earlier a little bit he does full frontal yeah but i don't think that's necessarily you know yeah no nobody watches bad lieutenant and thinks yeah no he's super hot though he is hot in that movie but yeah i get exactly what you mean but the piano really did like when we saw that ass (laughs) (laughs) harvey keitel's ass in the 90s is a real institution it's it's really beautiful. It was really great. I mean, you know, also, you know, Holly Hunter's ass in that movie was good, too. But you can tell by, like, the gaze of the camera yes. that we're supposed to be looking at him. Absolutely. Holy Smoke is really interesting in that respect, too, especially if you go into, like, the way that that movie was received and reviewed. And a lot of the reviews really focused on... Kate Winslet and her, you know, sexuality and her being naked in the movie. And there was a lot of like, even like, you know, not even just sort of like the old white man guard or whatever, but like there were like young hip critics who were talking just like endlessly about like Kate Winslet's voluptuous body and yada, yada, yada. And I'm just like, yeah, yes, like, yes. And also she's amazing. But, like, it's interesting that that was sort of the lens through which we were viewing Kate Winslet at the time. And it makes Holy Smoke even more of a twin with In the Cut in Campion's 
like filmography because like the two of them I think are temperamentally sort of speak to each other a little bit and I agree. In, in the cut was totally dominated by this idea of like Meg Ryan naked what's going on like yada 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 yeah yeah that's true and I was I was rewatching in the cut um with that same boy that I subjected to holy smoke it's like okay I made you watch holy smoke yeah you broke and him that in was uncomfortable for you yeah. <laughs> so let's do let's do in the cut a film that you were probably much more comfortable with than he was but we were watching the scene where Meg Ryan is nude the, the nude scenes and he was just like okay you told me that people were upset about her being naked in this movie but I don't get it and it's just like well you see she's supposed to be unattractive and he was just like I don't get it <laughs> I was just like, yeah, no, I mean, you have the correct opinion. I also don't get it. She looks really hot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the way, but the way that she was talked about back then is so confusing to me. I don't know what people were on. Did they just like not like bushes or like, <laughs> I, my, my general uh, guess is that people were just uncomfortable with the idea of Meg Ryan being nude. Yes. Period. Yes, I think that was 100%. <laughs> I think Meg Ryan being that sexualized in that way really freaked people out, and they did not want that. And it's not even just that she's nude, but, like, she's talking about, like, cum in in the cut, too, which, right. I mean, uh, which is absurd to me. I feel like we talked about this on our episode, but it's absurd to me because, like, one of the most iconic Meg Ryan you know, yes! screen moments is her faking an orgasm. Why does it freak people out that much? I mean, like, In the Cut is still a tough movie. Like, it, you know, sex and violence is in this interplay in a way that is designed to make people uncomfortable. But in terms of, like, Meg Ryan's sexuality in that movie, I don't understand why it freaks people out so much. Well, um, Chris, it makes me think of... We did a, mo- a movie a few weeks ago. We did The Counselor, the Cameron Diaz movie. And that one where her, you know, scene with the car where she's, you know, sexing the going car. Going full titan. And that one, obviously, like, that threw a lot of people for a loop. And... It wasn't a thing I really brought up on the podcast, but a thing that I thought was just like, oh, it's wild, fully wild. But like that scene was the bridge too far for a lot of people. And yet what's like one of the most famous scenes she's known for is like, like swipe and come through her hair and it sticks up straight in the air in uh, something about Mary. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's co- yeah. it's that context, right? Where it's just like, if it's safely comedic and we can sort of put it in a box that we're laughing at and whatever, cool. If we're supposed to take it even, and I don't even know how much we're supposed to take it seriously in The Counselor, but like certainly in, in The Cut, like that is a movie that you, you know, you're certainly not supposed to be able to like laugh it off or whatever. And it's people aren't ready for it people are people don't want it it all loops yeah. back to kate winslet in a really interesting way because we'll talk about this because she ended up becoming like the actress who was known for getting naked right but like in terms of this movie's reception and the like you know response by straight male critics uh in like like you said the old guard is like Kate Winslet also has probably the most famous or one of the most famous nude scenes ever in a movie, and that's Titanic. Yeah. So, yes. Granted, like, this is her peeing on yeah, screen. Yeah, I get why this which was apparently more is for real. People. And I, 
like not to not to ever <laughs> doubt Jane Campion's choices as a director, but like in the way that we see it, like that could have been faked. She didn't. We didn't necessarily need to subject Kate Winslet to the stress of having to pee on screen. I mean, do we know? I I would love to know how she felt about it. That's that's the thing that I would interview her for. Like, what was it like to pee? <laughs> Did you enjoy that? Yeah. <laughs> Was it a long day? Was it just going to happen anyway? You know, yeah, <laughs> saved you a break or something. Yeah. It's a really fascinating... I'm, I'm really interested to talk about it with you guys, this movie, because it's a movie... I was saying to Chris before we started recording, I'd seen it before, but I had seen it, like, when it was pretty new. It was, like, pretty early 2000s when I saw it. So I was, like, in my very early 20s, I, like... I was fascinated by any kind of cinema that seemed daring or unconventional or, you know, this was, you know, this was really doing something. Jane Campion's really making a swing here. And so I was really fascinated and really, you know, uh, impressed by it. Watching it now, I like it less. I think it's less successful. And, but it's still a big swing. Like it's still undeniably a big swing. And I'm really fascinated to hear what you guys thought of it because I could see this as the kind of movie that like opinions probably should be like all across the spectrum for it. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think it needs the type of reassessment that in the cut has received partly because like this movie almost feels like it only exists as a factoid. Like, already, because The Power of the Dog is coming out and people are, you know, celebrating Jane Campion again, it feels yeah. like no one's talking about this one in any way. Like, I've even seen, you know, people who really stand by Portrait of a Lady, like, coming out and be like, you should watch Portrait of a Lady, but, like, I feel like we're I the mean, only, only smoke every- people. <laughs> yeah, everyone should watch Portrait of a Lady. It's weird that that's an that's an underrated one from her. Well, it seems I, like Jane I, Campion's got nothing but underrated movies in between The Piano and The Power of the Dog, right? Like people, I guess uh, yeah, Top of the Lake. I would say so. Top of the Lake, people are really into, but like that's a different beast. That's a miniseries and whatever. But you look at Portrait of a Lady, Holy Smoke, um, In the Cut, and Bright Star. All four of those movies are in one way or another, overlooked or undervalued or misunderstood in some way. Yeah. Which is why if Power of the Dog really is this universally beloved and embraced movie, we need to run with it as far as we fucking can. This is this is my feeling as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> And y- have y'all both seen Power of the Dog? Already? Yes. I won't see it until the day this episode airs. <laughs> oh, Chris, I'm so excited for you. I know, I know. I'm very excited oh, for you. Oh, yeah, I, ca- I can't wait for you to watch it. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I read the book, I'm a obs- uh, humble brag, uh, but I I was obsessed <laughs> oh, with read. the book. Like, wow. The book, I flew through it in, like, no time. It's incredible. I'm so excited to see what she does to, you know... Yeah, make it her own and like I know that she apparently does uh, divert from the text in a few ways I'm excited to see what that holds but like yeah uh, should we get into the plot description so that before we really get into like the meat of this movie yeah I think we should yeah alrighty yeah. guys just to set us up we are once again talking about Holy Smoke directed by the genius Jane Campion written by Jane Campion with her sister Anna Campion 
starring Kate Winslet, Harvey Keitel, Pam Greer, I definitely want to talk about it, Julie Hamilton, Tim Robertson, Sophie Lee, Danielle Wiley, and Paul Goddard. Uh, the movie premiered in competition at the Venice Film Festival and then opened limited uh, December 3rd, 1999. Jordan, as our guest, you get the pleasure of doing a 60-second plot description of this very plotty movie. Um, are you ready? Sure. I'm going to go bare bones with it. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of have to. And then, like, you know, we can get into the into the weeds of this movie, which feels like it is about 75% weeds. Um, uh, but anyway, Jordan Searles, your 60-second plot description of Holy Smoke starts now. So Holy Smoke is the story of Ruth. She gets um, caught up in a cult in India, and her family is trying to get her back. So then they um, bring in Harvey Keitel, plays a character named PJ, and PJ is a known deprogrammer. And they have to spend this time together in this isolated, like, cottage or something in the desert and there they play around with like sexuality and gender roles and it gets messy and pam grew shows up (laughs) all right i guess uh if uh that is it you got it in record time that truly like the final ending of this movie i could understand how someone goes off thinks it goes off the rails but I mean, it almost feels necessary um, because it ends up like in a kind of chase sequence. Uh, there's a Christmas song. So I guess we discovered that this is also a Christmas movie. Uh, they like get into a physical altercation and then they're like spooning in the back of a truck. And then it ends with this like emails back and forth. I want to talk about the emails. In this movie. The emails. Uh, I mean, there's so many questions. Like I, I, it's weird that I'm being nitpicky, but <laughs> one of my main questions about the emails is this idea that like, where did the kids come from? Because like in the end, like him and PJ and Pam Greer's character have kids. And I'm just like, wait, did they adopt kids? Like what? <laughs> is happening is pam greer supposed to be playing younger i mean she's a gorgeous she could you could tell me that she was aged right and, like i would believe you right but like he was just like oh yeah we have twins now and it's just like aren't you both middle aged? right where did the twins come <laughs> right. from what's happening and it, and you can't even get away with just like well he, like the whole point of the movie is that he is older he's an older man you know what i mean so it's just like it's it's a weird thing to to introduce that into the end. It's 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 such a strange sort of whiplash sensation at the end of the movie where all of a sudden this epilogue seems to suggest that she fell in love with him. He obviously like felt like that their feelings were like more than just this weird psychosexual obsession that happened in a desert that like there are these like lingering feelings that like even with like time and distance, both of them still seem cool with the fact that they have 
these feelings for each other and nobody's really gonna like you know interrogate that too too heavily nobody else is gonna understand their fucked up weekend together and she's like i have a boyfriend but i would still do it and he's like i am married with kids and i'd still do it so like don't tell my wife oh i feel like you know if they would like meet then it would be playing that gwen stefani song cool (laughs) (laughs) oh the worst sequel to somewhere ever uh, these two <laughs> meeting up again. That's that's their before sunset. Actually, is uh... L. Fanning would definitely play this role today. Oh god! <laughs> oh, abso- oh my god! L. Fanning in the desert peeing. She would do it. She would She'd do it. She'd but be up for it. Absolutely. Uh, listen, yeah. Thomas and Mackenzie apparently has like one scene as the maid in yeah, Power of the she's Dog. She's very so, brief. Like people will do anything for Jane Campion as that's they true. should. Yeah. Um. Also, the e- not just in the emails, but like the subtitles, the fonts throughout the movie are so late '90s. It is literally the Matrix font. It, it is, is the one the thing same that feels like is dating this movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I also feel like, and and this is where I want to get your guys' uh, input most of all is the tone of this. I had forgotten that this movie is like explicitly like quasi comedic, that it is like the Mm -hmm. most, I have not seen Campion's first two movies. I've not seen, um, sweetie or an angel at my table. So I can't really speak to her entire filmography, but of the angel at my table is definitely not a comedy. Sweetie has like this weird kind of tonal balance that Holy smoke does of her filmography. I would say Holy smoke is kind of like a hybrid between sweetie and in the cut. That seems. Yeah. Yeah. So how successfully do you think she pulls off the comedic angle of this movie? Because in many, in a lot of ways, I feel like it undercuts what some of the other stuff in the movie is doing. But the other side of me is like, yeah, but if the movie was just like all like told the story in a purely dramatic way, I'd kind of find it unbearable too. So like, I'm not sure what I wanted out of it, but like all the stuff with her family, all the like interjections with, with Ruth's family, I did not care for at all. So I don't know. I don't know what you guys were at. Yeah. Yeah. I, they were very, the family was very wacky and I could honestly see it like a version of this where we meet them. They're the catalyst. And then they're just, that's gone. sort of what I expected. <laughs> I did not remember them interjecting that much into the rest of the movie. Yeah. I mean, there's a satirical element to this family because like, the comedic element, I think, is pretty unexpected in this movie, especially if you're going into it knowing the logline, knowing that it's a very sexual movie. Mm-hmm. And it she really does kind of drop you in this kind of farcical tone. Mm-hmm. And, like, there is an, I think, the kind of farce of this family, which is, like, supposed to be rather off-putting, but they're also, you know before we really even get to know Kate Winslet's character, you have this Australian family, you know, kind of going off the rails and freaking out because she is in a cult in India. And, like, (laughs) the suggested, like, the tone of racism and assumed barbarism because it's in India. It's very (laughs) important that this family be the real like toxic thing i think by comparison because it's like 
well, you guys are the problem, too. Like, it's not just that she's in a cult and, like, you don't trust it because she's not in a white environment. But, like, well, and, I don't know. I That's where I get the intention in this kind of Looney Tunes family, yeah. you know? yeah. I mean, I, I definitely see that that's what the purpose is. And, and it's, it is helpful in the sense that we, this is a movie about a bunch of white people in India. <laughs> and, you know, there's like, there's like music playing that's like, you know, <laughs> you know, they have the, they've set this whole tone, they've set this whole mood, and it's very, I guess it's supposed to soften the whole, like, colonial vibes, but it's still, like, very colonialist vibes, which makes it even stranger, because, like, it's very clear that we're supposed to think that Kate Winslet is, like, um, very naive, but then she'll say things where it's just like, eh, eh, I mean, she has a point. <laughs> I, I agree with that, actually, and I think that's maybe one of the more interesting things about the movie is that her character i think is portrayed very realistically in that way where she's like she has she you you come out of that movie being like well yeah like she has good reason to want to push against her boundaries and rebel against her family and you know try you know something new and seek uh truth in a way that her family and her environment seems very hypocritical to her and yet she has that very sort of like 19 years old you know i found the answers and now i'm you know i'm going to be really sort of self-righteous about it and (laughs) the movie i think is very plain about how she exoticizes the indian environment in the in in an opposite way, but no less, uh, you know, no less of an exoticization. God, I'm bad with words today. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then what her family's doing, her family's just doing it from the, like from a negative angle, but she's sort of, you know, she's drawn to, she just, she, I think she says at one point, she's fetishizing it a little bit. She's fetishizing it. She's, she says at the beginning, she's just like, Oh, I just want to like do something more real than what you guys are doing on our little trip or whatever. And the idea that it's more real, the idea that like it's to her pure is very tangled up in her own perception of it's not white. So it's better, you know, like she, she's objectifying it as you're saying the same way. Yeah. I think, you know, it's also interesting to talk about like the kind of cultural tourism in the text of this movie, because I think it's something that a lot of people um, talk about the piano. Um, in terms of its characters, specifically Harvey Keitel's characters and like the movie's lens on that. Mm. I just think Jane Campion is one of the like most skilled directors in presenting these scenarios where multiple things can be true at one time. Um, especially like it, multiple extreme things can be true, right? She can like kind of push, uh, she can present something uh with like the humanity the artistry of it that like you know things that are so far out there kind of in the convention of what we see in movies uh you know can be true at the same time yeah 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 definitely and it's true yeah i was when i was re-watching the piano a couple of days ago i i said it's like yeah i remembered that he was spending a lot of time um 
with the Maori, I believe. They're called Maori. 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 Yeah, spending a lot of time with them. And I was like, oh, yeah. I <laughs> Like, when I was younger, I didn't really clock this as much. But, but yeah. Yeah, he is. And, uh, like, I wonder also if that's, like, part of what is attractive about him to her where as opposed to like Sam Neill, who is right. like very, very rigid mm-hmm. and very like clearly like white, <laughs> you know, like love, like in terms of like buying into whiteness and all that it entails. Specifically in that time and setting too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that Holy Smoke does that I think we could debate as to how effective it is, is it kind of pivots from the fetishization of uh, Indian culture and Indian religion and sort of, you know, metaphysical awakening and whatever to it kind of like transfers that to this battle of the sexes, a battle of wills between Winslet's character and Keitel's character, where all of a sudden their arguments go from being sort of like very, I would say, surface level about things like religion and her, uh, you know, her cultish beliefs. And that's, I think, also, we'll talk about that in a second, but like one of the weaknesses I think in the film is that like it doesn't seem like it's all that difficult to break her of these cult beliefs. It's sort of just like she watches one film strip about Marshall Applewhite or whatever. And, uh, and she's, and she's cured. (laughs) Um, but it, it like, we're not, then it pivots to this, you know, Harvey Keitel is this like piggish American, you know, chauvinist, whatever. And she is this, you know, voluptuous young temptress and she tries to essentially like emotionally top him and uh and it works spectacularly (laughs) well and so then it becomes just like oh now who is the one who's under whose thrall and who's the one being broken and yada 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 and it's just like like on a like thematic level i'm cool with it on a like actual character level of like following things through i don't know if i buy it the whole way through i have less of an issue with that the kind of suddenness that they are able to break each other because i do ultimately see the movie as a farce right like i i don't know how much we're supposed to meant to be able to think about it plus it's also characters that like even though he is a finger quotes like expert in deprogramming he's like, a terrible deprogrammer like well, from the break also, yeah. i think we're also presented characters who are you know as much as they don't think they are they are basically only knee deep in these philosophies that yeah. they are you know in terms of how invested they are it's more about you know themselves yeah yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the way that it becomes a battle, because I totally forgot. I remember the gender stuff. The cult stuff was a little fuzzy in my brain, and it's because there's really just not a lot of it. I, I didn't even notice it before. Um, and I almost feel like the gender stuff is also a little bit easier to do because it's very, I almost feel like, there wasn't that it was always meant to be a setup for that. Like, I don't know how much Jane was really interested specifically 
in the cult itself. And especially just because, like, they're... um, a lot of their conflicts at some point, well, maybe not a lot, but some point, uh, Harvey Keitel brings up how, you know, how, you know, how they treat their women in India yeah. and like, like how, how could you feel empowered here? <laughs> and then it just becomes this whole thing where it's like, well, what, like on a base level, what does he even know and what does she even know and what is this really about it seems to be more about like traditionalism versus yeah a, some kind of like exotic a more exotic lifestyle and i don't know well and not to be no, all like, i think that's a really smart observation because it's also her family that's putting her in this situation her family which like all exists within these nuclear units of all of these basically macho men doing whatever they want and you know women either being the uh you know, uh, put upon a uh, mothering figure or the sexualized um, girlfriend figure, which uh, uh, what was the name of that sister character who basically the whole time I was watching at this time, the actress looked like Sherry Moon Zombie to me. <laughs> oh, what was her name? Yvonne? Yvonne. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, she was something else. <laughs> she was great. Sherry Moon Zombie is not a bad comparison, but like, but like, if Sherry Moon Zombie had been in Muriel's wedding, right? Exactly. Is she one of the women in Muriel's wedding? Am I just making that up or what? Yes. No, she is. I. I just. Uh, yeah, I just looked it up. And we, yes, she is in Muriel's <laughs> wedding. So yeah. So that that tracks. spectacular. Okay, that tracks. <laughs> um, I think she's the girl that uh that uh gets into the fight af- as uh. They're singing Waterloo. Remember the scene? Obviously, the famous Waterloo scene. And then the girls start brawling. I think she's one of the girls who starts brawling. Anyway. um, Yeah, she was a trip. (laughs) I have not seen that movie yet, but I see that it is on HBO Max. Oh, highly recommended. It is a gift you should absolutely give yourself. Highly recommended. Yeah. But so, and not to be all like CinemaSins about it or whatever, but like it did strike me watching the movie that, like, he's supposed to be this, like, deprogramming expert. Like, literally, they make a point of it being, like, we're paying for the best. Could we pay for the second best? How much would that be? And she's like, no, we're paying for the best. And I'm like, okay. And he comes from America and, like, and yet seems so easily, like, it does feel like this is his first rodeo. You're watching it and you're just like, he doesn't seem to have these two terribly sophisticated, you know, tactics uh, or, like, um, a grasp on Eastern religions or any kind of, you know, messianic belief. And also, like, is this the first time you've been encountered with, like, a beautiful woman? Like, it just, it's not to, like, take anything away from, like, Kate Winslet as, like, an otherworldly beauty or whatever. Um, but this is where I think the farce comes in, though, because, like, I think the suggestion, the idea is not that he's never been presented with a beautiful woman, but he's never been presented with a woman who pushes back in any real way. Um, and that's, I think, where the grander, uh, idea of what Shane Campion is saying about the gender roles and like their intrinsicness to like the family home uh, comes in that like it's not that you know there's what is special about Ruth that like you know knocks him down so quickly is that she pushes back at all except like pushes back on the things that 
he hasn't ever thought about or had pushed back on. Except when we get the brief glimpses of Pam Greer, it's not like Pam Greer comes across as a pushover. Do you know what I mean? Like that's that to me, I don't I yeah. sometimes have trouble sort of reconciling that because it's like she is the woman in his life and she doesn't seem to be any kind of shrinking violet, even though we don't get nearly enough of her in this movie. Um I guess it's like an hour and 20 minutes until she shows up. Yeah. Yeah. I think if the farce had worked better for me, I would probably be more on board with this movie than I am. But there's something that doesn't fully connect with me. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's very hard to tell. The whole thing with um, PJ and Ruth is, is really interesting. I, because yeah, it, he just kind of seems like a novice. Like, it's weird that he's supposed to be... I think he just, like, wanted to show up and just be like, I'm a man, you should stop doing what you're doing and do what I asked you to do. Okay, are we done now? And yeah. I feel like he's... I feel like he's really... He has to struggle with the fact that he actually has to work, and it seems like he hasn't before. Right. And it's just like, how... Have you managed to get away with this well, without actually doing anything? I And the way that they explain the deprogramming process, who that sort of, you know, pencil pusher looking guy who like explains what they're going to do. And essentially it's just like, well, we'll kidnap her and then we will um, lie to her for our purposes and our lies will break the programming of you know, the Baba's lies, and then you can, like, start from square one, essentially. And it's just like, so even from the beginning, and they talk about how we're going to steal her, we're going to capture her, and it's just like, it it's not a process that seems on the up and up. They talk about how the family is just like, well, if they find her in the desert, they're probably going to arrest all of us for kidnapping. So that's not good. And so it does seem like the process is intended to be I'm we're going to take you from this cult leader and we're going to present you with a different kind of cult leader, but it's going to be, and the way it presents in the movie is Harvey Keitel is this like cult of Western masculinity, right? And you are going Mm -hmm. to fall under the thrall of that cult. And that's, what's going to break you of this other thing. And you'll be like back to normal because the normal thing is to be under the thrall of this like Western masculinity supremacy. And I think I get that like on paper and I wish I get it a little bit more in, you know, in the process of the movie, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, I think the way that Ruth clocks him is that she realizes that he's pathetic (laughs) and then she just, she just runs with that as far as she can. But yeah, I, I think that if the movie, uh, like kind of like focused on that, like she realizes it and you can realize it by the way that she interacts with him, but I don't know. Well, no, the movie finds out that he's pathetic, uh, (laughs) like pretty later on, but I kind of wish it was more about that. Like, wow, this whole like American bravado thing is really just kind of stupid, isn't it? And you see it (laughs) and you see it work on someone like Yvonne, right? Who like spends literally like 
a 10 minute conversation with him and is sucking his dick by the end of that conversation. Right. So like she has like yeah. fully, like she falls under his spell, whatever weird, you know, uh, macho spell that he has. Like, so like, I guess she's supposed to be the, the proof that like this would work on other people, but also Yvonne seems vapid and silly. You know what I mean? So it's just like, well, like, is Ruth really the only woman of substance this guy's ever really come across in his real life? And, like, I don't know. I don't know, man. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's weird because uh, <laughs> Pam Greer. She's right there. Pam Greer. It's, uh, yeah, uh, the choice to cast Pam Greer for a role like this is, is I think, trips up the movie in a big way. Because nobody... There's no universe where someone would think, oh, yeah, Pam Greer, that's a pushover. Right, <laughs> right, right. Like, honestly, it being a black woman at all is really a mess. Like, because it's like, if there's going to be a woman who is going to tell you where to go, it's a black woman. So This particular just... <laughs> black woman, especially, who is, like, so known for, like, her. that's her persona is, like, telling you where to go, right? Like, that's the whole, yeah. that's her deal. And, yeah. Yeah, the idea that, like, a little Kate Winslet is better at it than Pam is very funny <laughs> right. to me. Because she's just like a... I don't know, how, how old was Kate Winslet during this role? Because I know she's playing a 19-year-old. She's not, she would have been young 20s because yeah. she was, what, 19 when she shot? Um... Well, what was that MasterCard commercial uh, she did uh, where she talked about all of the ages yes. she was at when she played all those roles? I loved that commercial so much. At 17, I went to prison for murder. By 19, I was penniless and heartbroken. I almost drowned at 20. Then I had my memory erased at 28. And by 29, I was in Neverland. My real life doesn't need any extra drama. That's why my card is American Express. Um. Oh, yeah. She would have been 23, I think. Yeah. Yeah. When she made this yeah. movie. Yeah. All that is true about the Pam Greer character. That being said, I think in the two scenes she's in this movie, she's fucking sensational. <laughs> oh, she's, she is. She's I mean, of course she is. Yeah. But like. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and like, this is, this is shortly after she doesn't get nominated for Jackie Brown. Joe and I have both mentioned she would be our best actress winner that year. Yeah. This should have been a reunion of two of the women that Helen Hunt beat for that Oscar if uh, Pam had been nominated, which she should have been. Yeah. Um, okay. But I think, I think I, I understand a lot of, uh, what you guys are saying in this. I, I guess I'm probably the person who likes this movie the most. I think the integral ingredient to the things that aren't quite clicking, and I don't want to sound like I'm selling you guys on this movie, but like, no, sell it us is on this movie. Sex, it's, it's, especially, it's especially it. for Harvey Cartel's character that like she unlocks him basically so quickly is a sexual ingredient too, because like, maybe I don't understand, maybe I don't buy that he's never been with a woman who's challenged him or he's never been around, you know, um, uh, all of the things that we've said, but I do buy that he's never been topped by a woman. Oh yeah. 100%. And he definitely, I definitely think the like, one of the like key ingredients to why Ruth is able to dismantle him so easily is that she sexually emasculates him. Yes. And he discovers that he likes it and that he's willing to go with it. 
This is true. This is true. He does. And that's, I mean, that's really the most interesting thing about this movie. And that's also the part of the movie. That's also like the element of the movie that made the guy that I was watching with kind of uncomfortable. And I think (laughs) probably made a lot of like audiences and critics in 1999 uncomfortable too. Yeah. 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 Like what the fuck would Rex Reed say about this? (laughs) Oh my God. The unvaccinated Rex Reed. But even I was oh. watching the uh, the the Ebert at the movies clip. This was uh, when he was uh, hosting the show, still with guest hosts, and it was him and Janet Maslin, and neither one of them um, liked the movie all that much. But he said, uh, "Holy Smoke is not a successful film, but neither is it a boring one." And I was like, "Yeah, I'm I'm on board with that." And I think the latter half of that carries a lot of weight with me because, like, it is a really interesting movie and in its, in what it's trying to do. And it gave me a lot to think about. And I do think Winslet is pretty spectacular in it, especially given how young she is and that she's sort of, you know, coming off of Titanic. So it's just like literally like the height of her early career stardom. Like you talk Mm -hmm. about, it's fascinating to think about how she and DiCaprio's careers sort of, emerged from titanic and what they did and right around this time that actually that same ebert at the movies episode was they reviewed the beach so like this is holy shit both of them taking these really interesting like big swing kind of movies that did not succeed that like people did not want that from them and i like that that the you know they were both happening at the exact same time well, it's frustrating in hindsight, too, because people thought that some of these choices were reactionary, like, against their Titanic stardom. And it's like, they're incredibly young actors who are just basically beginning their real career. And, like, yeah, you're talking about, uh, if we're just going to stick with these two examples, those are two directors who are incredibly interesting. Yes. Why would they ever turn them down? Why would you turn down Jane Campion and Danny Boyle at that point in your career? Well, you, know, you can do anything why would they go and make you know the boring uh titanic adjacent prestige picture granted they basically turn right around and do that because winslet goes and does iris sure but when but i think both of their careers especially in those like post titanic pre i mean i guess we could say like pre-revolutionary road sort of when they when they would reunite Mm -hmm. again but that kind of decade of their career was marked by them doing really kind of interesting and challenging projects. And I think The Beach is the pinnacle of that with DiCaprio. I think Winslet would do it sort of again and again with Holy Smoke, with Eternal Sunshine, with, you know, you know, a lot of, not all of them successful. There were some Life of David Gales in there, but... Romance and cigarettes, baby. <laughs> but even that is just like, I could see the appeal of doing something like, ooh, a musical with, you know, directed by John Turturro. Like, okay. Um, I want to watch that. How is that? I've never seen it. Weirdly, I've, I've never, never seen, seen it either. It. We should all watch it, you guys. I think it's I think it's streaming somewhere, maybe HBO Max or something. But that's a good idea. I should get high and watch that's that. That's a good idea. Uh, yeah, but yeah, they were both really experimental. Like there was this one Leonardo DiCaprio movie I remember called I think it was called like Total Eclipse that I only caught um once or twice and he was like a gay poet or something like that. What? It was like 
Oh, was that when he I, played? Didn't he play Arthur Rimbo in a movie? That could have been the one. I think that's maybe the one that, you're talking about. And I'm going to look this up. Because that one's really hard to find. I, yes. Like it used to come on cable. But then when I wanted to watch it again as an adult, I've had I've had trouble tracking it down. Yeah, 1995. Well, he probably eclipse. buried it by yeah. the sounds of it. That was the one he made uh, between The Quick and the Dead and Romeo and Juliet, William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet. Uh, he plays Arthur Rimba, the uh, the uh, poet, the queer poet from, uh, um, I don't know, eras, yeah. whatever. He's French. Yeah, it's like it, it's like him and David Thewlis. Right, right. I've never seen this movie either. All right, I'm going to watch that in Romance and Cigarettes back to back is what I'm going to do. <laughs> but like post-Titanic for DiCaprio, like not counting... Um, the Man in the Iron Mask, because that was, you know, in theaters when Titanic was in theaters. Um, the Beach, Don's Plum, the talk about movies that were hidden away from view. Oh, yeah. He and Tobey Maguire made sure that that movie is not anywhere on the face of the planet in America. <laughs> but that was filmed before Titanic, even. Um, and I'm not sure when he filmed the the Woody Allen movie Celebrity, either. So The Beach is really, like, the only thing he does for a few years there. And then it's Catch Me If You Can in Gangs of New York in 2002. And all the, already he's trying to feel out where do I fit as like leading man in American film, right? Is it my Spielberg mm-hmm. deal? Is it Scorsese? And he does the Scorsese thing for a while. And he's trying to kind of, you know, feel it out in that way. And I think Winslet probably in part because there aren't as many like leading parts for her in big movies as there would be for, you know, DiCaprio for a male actor. It's, it's you know holy smoke and it's eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and it's now i'm trying to bring up what were her post little children right little children or um hideous kinky i guess although that's like right after titanic yeah i'd believe that she probably filmed that before titanic was even released and i have no idea what that is like i when i saw that (laughs) what is that that's another I, movie that I think takes place. I know it takes place in another Morocco. country, and there might be some cultural tourism Morocco. to it, but I've never yeah, seen yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, because it oh, always hasn't been all that available. Yeah. Oh, it's on Tubi. <laughs> of course, <laughs> everything always ends up on Tubi. Yeah. The finest streaming streaming service, Tubi. Yeah. <laughs> Even something like Quills that she made with uh, with Jeffrey Rush, like I could see the appeal of that being like. You know, it's a movie, it's a biopic about the Marquis de Sade. Like, it's, you know, it's, there's some danger there. There's some, you know, pushing of the envelope there. And it's a really interesting stretch of her career. The post-Titanic, pre-Oscar, you know, decade for Winslet is is pretty thrilling. And obviously she racks up a whole bunch of other Oscar nominations in that stretch. But I think Mm -hmm. she's pretty fantastic in Holy Smoke. I kind of wish she had gotten more awards attention for the performance. She was sort of on the outskirts of that best actress conversation, but never like too seriously considered for it. I would say. Yeah. She was one of the runner ups with national society, film critics, critics and the New York film critics, um, which like, I guess kind of makes sense because if there's going to be anybody sticking up for this movie in some way, Winslet's kind of, you know, your obvious uh, choice to kind of, 
corral some consensus. Um, no, I mean, just to like talk a little bit about how like she was in this era, an incredibly exciting actress, I think is partly why when she ultimately wins for the reader, yes. uh, why that was such a disappointment that, you know, that's the thing that she would win for, you know? Oh my god, the reader. So I have never seen the reader, but the reason why I've never seen it, aside from the fact that I have no interest in it, is that <laughs> I was at I was at a party, I was at the party that I went to where I got drunk for the very first time. <laughs> oh. And I was like and so it was just like I Somebody made me a gin and tonic, and I was like, this seems easy. And so then for the rest of the night, I made my own gin and tonics. Oh, that's how they and, get you. Yeah. Yeah. And and then, then like, I was like, okay, t- enough gin. And then I switched to red wine, which is insane. I was in, in I was 19. I was, so I was the same age as, as Kate Winslet's character. You fell under the movie, cultish but... spell of, uh, of spirits and wine. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> So, uh, Neil so Diamond was I, playing at this party. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. And so I like started to get like kind of shaky and then everybody's like, okay, we're going to watch a movie and it's three in the morning. <laughs> and this is a party full of like honors. Uh, it was like my honors party in college. Uh-huh. So it was just like all honors students. Terrible. Um, and so someone decides to turn on the reader and what I think it's like fuck? a I think it's a joke at first. Sure. Like they're just like, "Oh, we're gonna turn on. We're just gonna turn on the most unlikely movie you would turn on at a party, The Reader." Oh but God. then they actually decide to watch it, and I'm sick. And so then I go into the bathroom, thinking, "Okay, I'm just gonna get myself together in here." I end up just like throwing up all over oh. the bathroom, just like red, and it's all red, yeah. red everywhere. <laughs> Red wine puke will get you, man. Oh, boy. (laughs) And no one notices for a while because everybody's watching the reader and then somebody finds me in there and they're really sweet. I mean, that's the good thing about partying with honors kids. It's like they like, you know, they like nicely like took off my watch because I was still wearing a watch at the time. They like would (laughs) they like had all like my jewelry and stuff just like set out in my They know what to do. Yeah. It was very nice. But yeah, that happened during the reader. So I every single time I consider watching the reader, I just think about throwing up. And so I never (laughs) first of all, you don't need to see the reader because you have just told the only interesting story anyone's ever told that's adjacent to the reader. Um, yeah. So this story is amazing. It's like Midsommar about the reader. Like that. I want to see that film before I want to see uh, the reader ever again. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you've seen it. No. Oh, oh it's, yeah. It's an offensive movie. Um, I hate it. <laughs> I will ride with Stephen Daldry for most things, but but I uh, I I'll I'll take a walk around the block. While he's uh, while he's riding with the reader, yeah, it was for as much as I, you know, I kind of resent the way that people kind of turned on her during that Oscar campaign because she was too solicitous of you know awards and she was you know she wasn't you know blasé enough about it or whatever for people's taste. Like, I always found it refreshing because honestly, these people would not go through you know six months of fucking interviews if they didn't want an Oscar. Everybody in that room wants the Oscar. At least she fucking said, "Yeah, I want it." Yeah. Like it didn't help that like whatever it 
that Hollywood Reporter or Variety interview, whichever one it was, where they put it on the cover, hell yes, I won an Oscar, or whatever it was. Like, that doesn't help. And, like, that's not her fault. But like, Well, if there was, like, a perfect storm of, like, context around her that, like, made that all seem pretty unpalatable. Part of it was this idea that, like, she made these thrilling, really interesting choices for 10 years, and then she's going to get an award for the, you know, dumbest one, essentially. It was... The, the joke that she did on extras where it's like, you make I was, a movie about the Holocaust and they give you an Oscar. I was just about to bring that up. Yeah. The fact that she like called her shot, but in like a really like farcical way on extras where she like made a joke about doing a movie about the Holocaust and getting an Oscar. And that's exactly then what ended up happening. Now I'm doing it because I've noticed that if you do a film about the Holocaust, guaranteed an Oscar. I've been nominated four times. Never won. And the whole world is going, why hasn't Winslet won one? Yeah. That's it. That's why I'm doing it. Schindler's bloody list. Pianist. Oscars coming out of their ass. Here, Bob. Good luck, Ben. Also, the Weinstein Company shenanigans with like lead actress versus supporting actress. Like there was a lot of, there was a lot of shit. But at the root of it, it's still Kate Winslet, an, an actress that I like had adored all you know throughout her career. So I wasn't going to be. You know, Oscars are a are a fateful accident of space, time, and and circumstance. And I'm not going to look that gift horse in the mouth. While, you know, I don't know. Poor Deborah Carr's fans are just like, just take it, take your Oscar where you can get it. <laughs> I did think it was interesting <laughs> that she ends up on sort of in these runner up positions for various critics awards you mentioned national society and new york film critics national society went for a really interesting pick they sometimes national society because they come like very last of all the critics awards and they're just like all right you fuckers like we're gonna throw something interesting in here and reese witherspoon for election wins their best actress which like is rad and should have happened at more of those critics awards and would have been cool if she could have gotten a best actress nomination for that because like it still stands as one of her best performances. And, you know, the fact that it was like an MTV films, you know, production kind of made it a non factor for Oscar voters kind of right off the bat, which is too bad. Mm -hmm. Um, but that was the year of like it was Swank versus Benning pretty much everywhere, and everybody else was sort of fighting for scraps. And Swank wins New York and is also a runner up at National Society. Yeah, yeah. She was winning the Critics Awards, and then the, the expectation was that Benning was going to be the Hollywood star who would ultimately take the Oscar because that's sort of usually how these things work. And I would love to see how close it came because I imagine it would have been quite a close tally between the two of them but swank obviously ends up winning the oscar in a way that like and i love her performance in boys don't cry i think she's phenomenal but knowing that she would end up winning for million dollar baby over a less interesting annette benning performance for as much as like we look back on American Beauty with a little bit of a grimace. I think that Annette Bening's performance in that movie is the thing that I think probably holds up the best. 
And oh yeah, she's yeah. great. I would have loved for her. Like she's again, you talk about you know Oscars being a thing of you know time and circumstance, and if that circumstance has never come around for netbending, and it might not ever. And for as much as people sort of like poo-poo American Beauty now, I would love it if she had had if she had an Oscar on her mantle for that movie. She's the thing to still celebrate about that movie because I think like aside from having this, you know. And some people really hate that performance because they think it's this, you know, shrewish, uh, you know, offensive character. But, like, I actually think her performance is the thing that's better than anything else happening in that movie. She's capturing the attempted tone of what that movie is better than anything else. I haven't seen that movie in quite a while. I'm almost afraid to because i was really really in that movie's corner i was a college sophomore when i saw that like like clearly like the stereotypical college sophomore right seeing american beauty and i was that like annoying asshole being like you don't get it like this is a movie you know what i mean like i fully bought into all of it right like this movie is trying something completely different and it's totally like dismantling the notions of x y and z and i was like really really kind of in awe of this movie and uh all about it a lot of people were at the time a lot of people were at the time right and so now knowing and even like I remember that movie. And as I remember it, I'm just like, oh, oh, I don't know, man. I don't know how I would see a movie I, like this now. It, I mean, there. if you watch it through the lens of just knowing that Kevin Spacey's character is full of shit, because I mean, I think the main issue with American Beauty is just that like, Kevin Spacey's, you're supposed to be on his side because he's rebelling against the whatever, whatever, the suburbs, the whites, the capitalism, whatever. But, like, you could easily, if you watched it through the lens of Annette Bening, just being, like, one of those women who's like, I did everything right, I'm still unhappy, well, this is bullshit. <laughs> and I think and I think having watched Six Feet Under and watching Alan Ball's, you know, television output, at least through that show, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much True Blood has a dialogue with American Beauty, but at least with Six Feet Under, <laughs> Six Feet Under is also a show about how all of these characters in this family are rebelling against the lives that they've ended up with in their own different ways. And like Ruth is doing it in one way and David is doing it another way and Nate is doing it and, and Claire and they're, and they're not all on the same page. Like the point of six feet under one of the points is that like, they're never on the same page about stuff, but they have to sort of hold this center that they are a family. And I think, that to me helps me think back on American Beauty a little bit because like, yes, it's a weaker movie than it's a weaker production than six feet under is because six feet under doesn't shackle itself to any one character's POV and American Beauty does that with the spacey character. And if you allowed yourself to be in the head a little bit more of Benning's character or Thora Birch's character or God forbid Mina Suvari's character who was such a like object in that movie oh my god and she's and she's so and she's so good in it and it's a shame yeah. because I don't think that people remember her as a good actress at all right 
Uh, she also had a stint on Six Feet Under, actually, for a little bit. She was one of Claire's art school she friends. She did. I loved seeing her. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I should I should wade back into the waters of American Beauty. I should be brave and go see that again and see where I come at it. Because there is an angle to that movie that, like, they're all kind of trying to wrestle with, you know, this American moment, you know, that they're in. In different ways. And I think if you look at it through a little bit of a, you know, generous lens in that way, maybe it would hold up a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, I I think so. The one thing about because like just kind of looping back to and like this is one of the things I think people forget about American Beauty and where it's like, okay, well, this is what makes like as much as we want to be at you know a yardstick's length away from that movie the thing that like reflection or revisiting is that like that thing that you were saying that you were defending that movie at the time was absolutely a thing i mean in a lot of ways american beauty it was a culmination of and we've talked about this before a decade's worth of movies you know looking at the suburbs looking at the nuclear unit looking at like the american culture of that and it was like the culmination of movies like happiness the ice storm um yeah and like it gets embraced by the academy partly because it positions itself as the subversive choice whereas like all of the movies that were leading up to it in our kind of cultural fascination with this type of movie were in fact actually way more subversive than that movie is. But part of what allowed it to be the thinking man's uh, subversive choice for an Oscar movie is that its direct competition was the Cider House Rules, yeah. which is also actively retrograde. It is, you know, this kind of, weepy uh you know treacly movie that like really had to get pushed very hard by miramax and miramax also released holy smoke yes to like get the kind of embrace that it did to make it you know a best picture front runner um because it also along with holy smoke premiered at that venice film festival and like it was a movie that was not initially embraced. Like, no. they had to really find the audience for that movie. And it wasn't um, Miramax's first choice for Oscars that year. I can't remember what was the movie that bombed for them that year. And now I want to look this up. Because um, I, re- I remember that being, like, a backup plan almost for them. And I don't think Holy mm-hmm. Smoke was plan A either, but now I want to look and see. I mean, initially, Holy Smoke could have had a bigger plan before they knew what the movie was because, like, Miramax also distributed the piano. Like, they yeah. clearly would have had a relationship with Campion and oh, you did know what very it, well by Campion. You know what it was? It was the talented Mr. Ripley. But that was a co-production with Paramount. But I still think that was their... I think once... I mean, they had, like, Happy Texas or whatever that, like, was a, the Which, the Sundance bomb or whatever. But, like, that was their big movie coming into that award season. I, it was a co-production with Paramount, but I remember, like... I feel like Miramax was, like, expected to be the awards engine behind that movie. And mm-hmm. that... Like, beyond Jude Law, I think that movie got pretty well dropped in terms of, you know, 
were going to go for Oscars for this. Or I guess they did push it. I guess voters just like didn't go for it for whatever, you know, multiple backlashy kind of reasons. We've talked about that before, about how the talented Mr. Ripley in 1999 was the perfect storm of backlash against Gwyneth Paltrow, Matt Damon, Anthony Minghella all at once. And mm-hmm. it was kind of too bad. Really? I need to I need to listen to that episode. Yeah, that's because the talented Mr. Ripley What movie did we talk about is, when we talked about that? so good. <laughs> oh, it's a fucking masterpiece. Like, yeah. Yeah, because you totally have the people who were against Gwyneth very suddenly when she won. Mm-hmm. You have the people that were sick of young Matt Damon's shit already. And Anthony Minghella, you have the anti- anti-English patient people who are like, the English patient sucks, the English patient is boring, yes. and the oh English patient God. sweeps. So, like, yeah, they, they weren't... didn't want to do that for Minghella again. Exactly. Exactly right. And so the Cider House Rules then emerges as, it was a pretty late-breaking, I thought, uh, awards push for that movie that I remember it sort of emerging very late in the game. And I, I mean, oddly and ironically for as much as I was into American beauty, I also really loved the cider house rules. So like I was an odd and peculiar creature in 1999 (laughs) at odds with myself or something. Um, But yeah, I think the other thing about American cider house, go ahead. Oh, the cider house rules. That's the, that's one of those, Books that was like adapted from mm, that guy who made like the world according to Garp. John Irving, yeah, that John Irving. Guy. Yes, yeah, and he did um, uh, Hotel New Hampshire, which I watched a lot when I was younger. <laughs> that one I've, I've never, never seen, seen the movie about. What is that? What is that, that about? I've never seen that. That's or read the that incest book. one, right? It's yes, that's they're the all the one, incest. And it's got like Ro- oh, yeah. uh, Rob Lowe and um, Jodie Foster have like an incestuous thing in that movie. Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, weirdly, incest is a theme that, like, recurs through a lot of his stuff, actually, weirdly enough. John Irving, it's always, like, genital dismemberment, it is, you know, uh, car crashes, it is, you know, body trauma, people getting... Yeah, John Irving... what a strange man. <laughs> yeah. And he actually won the Oscar that year for adapting his own book. I kind of want to bring it back to, since we're on the Oscar conversation, I kind of want to bring it back to Jane Campion because signs point to her having a very good year with the power of the dog and like coming back into the Oscar fold in a real big way yeah. for the first time since the piano. Yeah. Um, Portrait of a Lady gets a Sporting Actress nomination for Barbara Hershey. Bright Star gets a Costume Design nomination, which is a shame because that means we can't talk about it on this podcast. And Joe Reed is probably the biggest I love Bright Star that movie that I know so much. It's such a it's I, it might be the most beautiful movie that I've ever seen. I think I said that on Twitter this week to somebody, and I think like it's it's probably true. It's so good. Is it your favorite Campion? Yeah, it is my favorite Campion. It is. It's so it yeah. it it's because it's not too terribly ambitious on a plot level, right? It's just like, oh, it's, you know, biopic of this poet who died young and yet from that sort of sketch of an outline builds this really like big beautiful love story that is so delicately told and yet like it's so impactful for being so uh 
delicate and beautiful and and well filmed and well acted and that was the movie where i really like fell head over heels for ben washaw too where i was just like oh boy like jeepers creepers like lying in a field of like purple violets or whatever i was just like oh my goodness gracious so yeah we need abby cornish to be that good again too yes um yeah I I am a much more basic, but I would say that like sometimes the obvious answer is the right one. My favorite Jane Campion would have to be the piano. It's a good movie. Jordan, which is your favorite? Is it in the cut? You know, what's interesting is that for many, many years it was the piano. Um and then like in the cut came and really like changed Everything for me, I really do think that In the Cut changed the way that I think about movies in general. So, yeah, it would have to be In the Cut, which is just so interesting because I I love all of her work. Even, like, Holy Smoke, which, like, I don't necessarily think is good. I still love that it exists. And, like, the the image of, I mean, the image of Harvey Keitel in that red dress is something that (laughs) I've been thinking about for, like... I've been thinking about that image for like 15 years from like the first time I saw it. Like I, I knew I could not remember the rest of the movie, but I knew. So, I mean, she, she's just really incredible. But yeah, I think that in the cut is my favorite. I mean, uh, she's just such a fascinating filmmaker. All of her movies are filled with so much, even like the ones before the piano, which we don't really talk about that much. She has a TV movie called two friends which is interesting and like interesting with how it plays with time and relationship to a friendship Mm -hmm. uh an angel at my table which is a biopic but like she is doing very interesting things within a biopic that like that movie has a lot of fans but like people should check that movie out just for that yeah yeah Um, i dig that movie uh and then sweetie which is like i said very um, aligned with what I think this movie is doing. Sweetie's ultimately more of like a family tragedy, I think, even though it is otherwise kind of a comedy. But yeah, yeah. I, I like Sweetie. Yeah, it's messy. <laughs> I feel like uh, Holy Smoke is the movie that kind of really, even though it could have like could have been seen as a potential Oscar player. I think it was the movie that probably pushed Campion out of Oscar consideration kind of mm. wholeheartedly because like people yeah. weren't ready for it and even with Portrait of a Lady after the piano, it is this kind of period piece that, you know, maybe if people didn't like it, they still thought that's who Jane Campion is because the piano launched her in this, like, huge global way. Right. Um, that, like, you know, the things that are odd, the things that are interesting, the things that make the piano a movie we still talk about almost 30 years later, mm-hmm. you know, it's very easy to see how an early 90s voter grabbed less onto those things than just the kind of formalism of it, you know, where it's like, it feels like it's an incredibly subversive movie for the Academy in the early nineties, but like, it's also a movie that looks the way it does and sounds the way it does that like, you know, a more conservative stodgy Oscar voter could still go for that movie. Mm. And I feel like it took those people 
a while to realize the filmmaker that Jane Campion actually is and that she's interested in, you know, subverting gender roles on screen. She's interested in sexuality um, in a way that's, you know, not always tidy, but always interesting and, like, has put people off on things that they're not prepared for. So I'm really excited to see... By all telling, the power of the dog still is those things, but like the Oscar scene, Oscar, uh, the Academy seems ready to embrace her in a get in a way that like not even having seen the movie, I don't like rooting for people to win on things I haven't seen, but like I need Jane Campion to win. <laughs> it's kind of surprising, and I mean, like uh, it, it's really surprising the embrace of power of the dog because I mean, obviously it's great, but it's also just like. One of the most obviously sexual movies, like that I've that I've seen. That's like not that. She, it's it's complicated. Like it reminds me a lot of you know those westerns where there's like all of this like subtext, like like Johnny Guitar or like Giant, where there's obviously like a lot of stuff going on, but. Um, uh, you still have all of the trappings of the Western, you know, stuff around it. Whereas, right. like, the power of the dog feels like, what if we took the subtext of the old Western and just made it the text? Mm-hmm. And what if we're just watching the text? <laughs> and so, like, it, it's fascinating to me because there's, it's so... Uh, this is this isn't a spoiler or anything. There's a scene where someone sticks their finger into a flower like it's like a vagina, <laughs> and I'm just. Sitting I've had there many just... gay men talk to me just about a particular shot in this scene, and I cannot wait to see this movie. It's so like it's just it's so sexual. So like it's it's going to be interesting, you know, how how they end up selling it because for me it's a movie that is like all about sex in a very very explicit way. <laughs> this is why when I read the book I was so excited by it because you can read the book and see Jane Campion as the person for it. And it's like, to some people, I've seen people be like, oh, that's such an odd pairing. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. Because you could no, see, like, not. I don't know, the fucking... Who's who's directed Westerns or like things like this where it, somebody just does it without any of that kind of uh, sexual understanding and the movie blows and is boring and doesn't get it (laughs) yeah yeah like i mean again without spoiling too like it's a text that is very much about power and i think especially in a gender dynamic that's something that jane campion is always fascinated with and that's why i'm really excited to see her uh work with this text well and you look at holy smoke you know bringing it to the movie that we're talking about today and maybe the most interesting the most sort of passionate idea that she has in this movie is this idea of like breaking down this very westernly masculine avatar in the Kaitel character and easily for me the most interesting thing about power of the dog is the way that it like makes masculinity this like very like again western masculinity like literally a western masculinity the the text and the the sort of the terrain of this movie where she you know 
molds it and twists it and 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 plays with it and it's all the more fascinating for it yeah absolutely you know i can't like chris the moment that you see it i need you to text me (laughs) i will text you the second i I leave the theater it will just be a it will be a keyboard slam i'm sure (laughs) um i'm so excited yeah yeah but I, I thought about, I was thinking about Holy Smoke. Now I totally remember. I was at the Q&A at NYFF for Power of the Dog. And someone was asking Jane about, like, how she feels about, you know, having a man be the protagonist in her movie and how she never usually does that. And even though, like, yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> she's always been super interested in men. So I didn't really see it that much of a departure, but she kind of did. It's like, I almost wanted to be like, do you remember Holy Smoke? Like, does she remember that she made Holy Smoke? <laughs> well, <laughs> because in some ways, especially I think in the beginning, like chapter of this movie, Winslet is kind of sidelined in a way by this family and like the family when they are on screen they are what's dominating yeah. the movie and i think with intention but like it is somewhat of a two-hander in a way that maybe like not even bright star is yeah i i would say so yeah bright star for as much as again i swoon and sigh over ben washaw like abby cornish is very much central to that movie yeah, and it's also integral, like, to the drama of the story when Ben Wishaw is not there and you want him to be there and they're trying to see each other and be, yes, you know, together. very much so, yeah. And there's also uh, the oh, um God, I used to know this guy's name. There's also the whole Paul, Paul Schneider. Paul Schneider, yeah. Uh, Paul Schneider is incredible uh, in that movie. I used to be so mad at him for leaving um, for leaving Parks and Rec, but I actually, I think he was right. I think he was right to leave. <laughs> I think that it's fine. I was mad at the time because I was like, he's cute. Who am I going to look at now? <laughs> uh, did he do Parks and Recreation? We didn't say much about uh, Harvey Keitel's performance in this movie other than sexualizing him which uh, I think Jane Campion would be partly fine with um, I, I think he's great like it, it it's a tough role um, a lot of because like it's very hard to figure out like who this guy is and even by the end I'm not sure if we know but he um, I just think about like how he how deeply he falls in love with her and how desperate he becomes for her. And it's not really something that you see. It's not a character that he plays. He never he never really pines for people. So I think that it's a, definitely a really interesting <laughs> difference. Yeah, and I don't think this is one of the things that like I just love Jane Campion's mind because I don't think like many people would think of Harvey Keitel for this role, and he's exactly right for it. Um, and like in the way that like Harvey Keitel is sexy, has anyone else cast Harvey Keitel as sexy other than Jane Campion? And it's like it's genius. Um, he's an actor who. I always forget is an Oscar nominee because when I was like preparing our outline for this, I was like, oh yeah, Harvey Keitel, no Oscar nomination. And it's like, no, he has the nomination for Bugsy, which I think the reason why that's 
it's forgettable that he's an Oscar nominee is because no one talks about that movie. No one talks no about one that does. movie anymore. And it's, see, to me, it's... And it had, like, what, 11 nominations or something. It was, yeah. Was it the yeah. nomination leader that uh, year? It was, a big, it was a big deal, wasn't it? I think it was the nomination leader that year. It must have been, because it certainly Silence of the Lambs certainly wasn't. And, um, and it has, like... Four acting nominations? Three. Four it was five? Beatty was nominated Three. in Best Actor. Weirdly, Bennett Benning was not nominated, which is like kind of surprising because she was a big she was a big deal in that movie. It was no, it's um it's uh, Ben Kingsley and, and Harvey Keitel were both nominated in supporting actor for playing mm-hmm. um Meyer Lansky and Mickey Cohen, respectively. Um it's surprising to me that that's Keitel's only Oscar nomination actually because like you think of him as this like I mean the man's 82 years old now and he's just been in movies wow, forever. Really? Yes, it's insane. Yes, it's crazy. Um he he's so yeah, he's he's like such a figure like even as a person who was born in 92 like he was such a figure and also because like I grew up with the piano I grew up thinking that he was hot and I yeah. grew up like being really it's, and not that he wouldn't be hot otherwise, but I do think that the piano is responsible yes. for a generation of women who <laughs> would not think that Harvey Keitel is hot to think that he is hot. <laughs> women, women and gay and men. So yes, whenever, yes. I will. I'll throw my yes, hat in the, in the ring men. for that as well. Yeah. Oh my God! I know. I'm so happy to know. Yes, this. it's true. <laughs> Guess what? My Harvey first. Harvey Keitel gets the affirmative stamp of a uh, uh, very formative ass. Yes. Guess what? My first Harvey Keitel movie was though the movie that it first introduced me to him. Bad Lieutenant. <laughs> no. Yes. There I was, age eleven, watching Bad Lieutenant. Uh, no, it was Sister Act. Sister Act was absolutely Perfect. the first thing that I saw Harvey Keitel in. So everything okay, after Sister that. Sister Act is also yes. a movie that says that Harvey Keitel is hot. Right. But imagine my whiplash going from, oh, that's the guy from Sister Act to the piano being like, oh, that's the guy from Sister Act. Okay. <laughs> Harvey Keitel and Sister Act, I would absolutely accept a gift of his wife for code. <laughs> He's sexy in that movie. <laughs> Iconic Gangsters Mall, Chris File. We now have it uh, on the record. Yes. I would be a great Gangsters Mall. I would ask no questions. (laughs) You would enjoy the spoils of his ill-gotten gains. And yeah. 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 I mean, wow. Now that I'm like, he, he's been in like so many great movies. It's wild that he only has one nomination. Like this is out of control. Yeah. How somebody needs to see, and and it's not like he's going to be doing like a crazy heart or something. So, like, what's going to go on? Where's his beginners? Oh wow! Beginners. Give Harvey Keitel his beginners. Mike Mills, get on that something. Um, what is he even? I'm trying to look through what his other uh, movies that he's got coming down the pike are. Nothing too terribly promising for Oscar wise, at least. I don't know. Justice for Justice for Harvey Keitel and that ass. Yeah, that great ass man. Like it was so. This is a man <laughs> who does his squat. Interestingly, he's in a movie <laughs> this year. I don't know when it's supposed to release, where he's playing Meyer Lansky, who was the Ben Kingsley role in Bugsy. He was the uh, um, 
Oh, it was supposed to. Maybe it did get released and it just didn't get a whole lot of attention. Yeah, apparently it released in the United States in June. So I guess it didn't do too much. Sorry, Lansky. Um, all right. We are now a Lansky her. podcast, I guess. We are not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one awards note that we always have to bring up when we can. Uh, Boo Hiss, the Yoga Awards, huh? the... It's the Spanish Razzies or is the Italian Spanish Razzies? Razzies. Spanish Razzies. They always do a worst of uh, Hollywood foreign categories. They gave Jane Campion, in a tie with Vim Vendors for Million Dollar Hotel, a worst foreign director award for Holy Smoke. Ooh. I feel like we're usually yelling at them for the things that they give their worst awards to. But this is egregious to me. Like, I understand if Holy Smoke is too much for people or they think it's kind of a mess. But, like, worst is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like a, it's like a beautiful movie. Like, it's, <laughs> what? It is stunning. Like, the Battle of Menti score is great. It's shot by Dion Beebe. It's a, yeah. Yeah. They also gave worst foreign film to What Lies Beneath, Robert Zemeckis' What Lies Beneath, which I think is a good movie. They gave worst... F- that Whoa. movie rules. Yeah. They gave worst foreign actress to Angelina Jolie for Girl Interrupted, The Bone Collector, and Gone in 60 Seconds, which, like... Whoa. <laughs> that's a lot going on there. Not There's, I mean... Busy in I 1999. She's good she in at was... least two of those movies. Yeah, yeah. I would have to say Yes. <laughs> Come on, guys. Wow. Come on, Yoga Awards. All right. Wow, Yoga Awards. Very, <laughs> very catty. Yes. Do we have uh, any last notes on Holy Smoke or Jane Campion? Um, Jane, I would love to have a drink with you sometime if you listen to this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. I really just want to spend time with her <laughs> so badly. Anyway. I just want to like recognize that like Kate Winslet in the uh, mid to late '90s in the Southern Hemisphere was really cutting it up with uh, with religious and sexual uh, overtone stuff between this and Heavenly Creatures. Like you put her in Australia or New Zealand, and shit's gonna happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. All right, should we move on to the IMDb game? Yes, let's. Yeah. Joe, why don't you tell our lovely listeners what the IMDb game is? Uh, sure. Why don't I do that? Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress and try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they're most known for. If any of those titles are television, voiceover, performance, or non-acting credits, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles' release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. That is the IMDb game. Yes. Jordan is our guest. You get to choose both if you want to give or guess first and who you want to give and guess from. I want to guess first. Okay. Would you like to receive your uh, IMDb person from me or Joe? Uh, you. Okay. So I am giving to you, which means you will give to Joe and Joe will give to me. You are guessing first. Uh, someone who also won a yoga award I have selected for you uh, in this year. A very notorious bomb. A win that we could not uh, argue with for worst for an actor. For Battlefield Earth, John Travolta. <laughs> 
Oh boy. So the known for for John Travolta. Um. Okay. Wow. I should be able to do this, but I don't know if I. Can. What a weird man. Okay. Um. Hairspray. No, no hairspray. See, the thing about hairspray is we've talked about it as one of those movies where everyone on the poster has it in their known for, and the marquee name on the hairspray poster does not have it in his known for. Wow. That's fascinating. Okay. Um, Saturday Night Fever? Saturday Night Fever, correct. His first Oscar nomination. God, he's been in so many movies, and I'm just like, what? What, <laughs> he, what is he known for? Big movies too. Um, Greece. Greece, correct. Okay, so Greece, Saturday Night Fever, um. These are at least the only 70s ones. I'll give you that little push along. Okay. Um, Pulp Fiction? Pulp Fiction, correct. So you have one left and you only have one wrong guess. Okay. Um, Could I have a clue? Uh, Sure, I'll just give you the year. It's 1995, so the year after Pulp Fiction. And we've done an episode on this. (laughs) Yeah, we have. Oh, okay. The year after Pulp Fiction. It's our only other Harvey Keitel movie, even though he's only in it as a cameo as himself. Oh, he does cameo as himself in this movie. Yeah. Um, is it Get Shorty? It's Get Shorty. Well done. Ah, okay. Good job. Cool. We kind of liked Get Shorty, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, I remember liking Get Shorty. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's actually a pretty good known for. I yeah. was I was worried that there's gonna be like I don't know like Michael or Phenomena. <laughs> Look who's talking. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was a big movie. <laughs> Alrighty, so now you get to get to Joe. Sure. Yeah. Since he's been on my mind lately, um, Tim Roth. Tim Roth. Ooh. Okay. Is Pulp Fiction one of his as well? Pulp Fiction is one of them. Okay. Yeah, you got it. Okay. All right. Um, his only Oscar nomination is Rob Roy, so I'm going to say Rob Roy. Yes. Okay. Uh, Reservoir Dogs? No. Okay. Tim Roth. Well, I just saw him in Dark Water, but it's probably not going to be Dark Water, which is too bad. <laughs> Um, playing the only good lawyer, uh, Darkwater. Um, all right. What else, Tim Roth? Oh, um, is it like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead? No. No. Okay. All right. So you get years now. Yeah. The years are 2001 and 2015. Oh God. 2015. What has he been in lately? 2001 has got to be no i was gonna guess planet of the apes but that's 2000 i think no that's no is it oh did i get it oh okay you got it yeah he chose being in planet over 
Planet of the Apes over being Professor Snape in the Harry Potter movies. Get out of here. Oh, wow. That is a fateful choice. (laughs) Oh, my God. 2015 is a movie that I forgot that he was even in, which is great for me because I would like to forget literally everything about this movie. Yeah, me too. 2015, we want to forget it. Is he in Trumbo? No, but I would also like to forget everything about that movie. What other 2015 <laughs> movies do we want to forget? Is he in The Danish Girl? Uh, no, but it is an Oscar winner. <laughs> it is an Oscar it's winner. It's like, it, this is, this, yeah, it's an Oscar winner by, you know, uh, a director that he's worked with before. Oh, Hateful Eight. Yes. <laughs> there we go. I Fuck totally forgot he was in that, too. Yeah, okay. <laughs> He's on the poster, too, so it's not like he's some Tarantino-y cameo. Maybe he dies first. I don't know. I don't remember. What did I just... Oh, I just saw The Harder They Fall, and I'm like, this is what I wanted The Hateful Eight to be. And I was happy that I saw it, so... I hate Westerns, usually, and I at least had a good time at The Harder They Fall. Me, too. I had a really good time. It's a great cast. All right. Joe, who do you have for me? I, for you, Chris, I, oh, okay, so I was going through the casts of other Jane Campion movies, and I stumbled upon The Portrait of a Lady, and in that cast is somebody Huge cast. Huge cast. But I had just seen a movie with this actress a couple, or maybe a week ago. I'm doing my spooky season watching, and... The one title that I came across on Paramount is a movie called Whoever Slew Auntie Rue, which is a like post whatever happened to Baby Jane movie where it's just like <laughs> actress, bad. like middle aged to older actress who's like kind of gone crazy and she lives in a mansion and like she kind of kidnaps these she kidnaps these two kids because um, her daughter had died and she's got like. Her mind's all messed up. But uh, that was the great Shelley Winters was in that movie and uh, mm-hmm. had no regrets watching that. Go check it out on Paramount Plus if you can. But Chris, give me the known for for Shelley Winters. Shelley Winters. Okay, so she has multiple Oscars, but I don't think The Diary of Anne Frank is on there. And why can't I remember her other Oscar? Um, I'm going to say The Poseidon Adventure, though. Yes, The Poseidon Adventure is correct. Okay. Don't think Portrait of a Lady is going to be on there, because to be honest, I forgot she was in Portrait of a Lady. Same. Um, Well, she's in a Kubrick movie. Is Lolita on there? Yes, Lolita. Very good. I feel like Kubrick's probably a director that when we get into some of these actors, they're going to show up. Okay. Uh, Is The Diary of Anne Frank on there? No, incorrect. Strike. Did she win for that? She did. That's one of her two Oscars. Yep. Um. Well, shit. Um. What other Shelley Winters movies? One of them is a banger. Yes. Like one of my favorites. Like I just bought it on Criterion. (laughs) Yes. Ooh, is that Night of the Hunter? Night of the Hunter, yes. Hell yeah, (laughs) fucking amazing. That's a great spooky season watch. Not because it's like ghosts and stuff, but that movie is terrifying. Robert Mitchum is very scary, yep. 
Ooh, wait, no. She is in Pete's Dragon. I'm going to guess Pete's Dragon. She is, but that's not uh, that's not one of the known four. So Damn your year you. for your missing one is 1965. I'm also just going to tell you it's the other movie she won an Oscar for. Okay. Uh, it's a generic title. It has Sidney Poitier. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. You basically got it. It's a patch of blue. Yes. I need to see that movie. She is blind, I believe, in that movie. Of course, because I mean, how oh else are you going to, you know, be with a black man in 1965? <laughs> oh, this sounds offensive. This is this is an Oscar win I haven't seen, but wow, that's the fucking plot of the movie. Yeah, she's a blind white girl who falls in love with the black man. Oh boy, <laughs> Jesus <Oscar>. Christ! <laughs> oh, not man. real. This is not a real movie. Oh, we we gotta love it. We gotta love it. It's it's basically like the same plot as like Mask. <laughs> oh boy! No, oh, I'm gonna watch this for spooky season because this is some scary dumb shit. Oh, All so right. stupid! It's scary. Well, well done, Chris. Good job. Thank you, thank you. Uh, guys, that's our episode. Uh, just as a reminder, all month we are taking uh, your responses both for our mailbag episode and an upcoming Listener's Choice episode. So guys, uh, reach out to us for the movie you want us to do for your Listener's Choice. Only one uh, ballot for listeners. No movies after the year uh, 2019 because we like to have some distance. And then for the mailbag, also send us your questions you want us to answer on the mailbag episode. Uh, try to steer clear of questions like, when will you do this movie? Or like uh, asking us to name like the one example that represents uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, you can ask questions on the current Oscar season, previous Oscar seasons. We love actor and actress questions. Uh, anything you guys want us to talk about. Uh, once again, you can tweet at us those listeners' choice ballots and your mailbag questions at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz, or you can email us at hadoscarbuzz at gmail. But that is our episode. If you guys want more of this had Oscar buzz, you can check out our Tumblr at this hadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. Uh, and also, once again, our Twitter is had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Jordane, this was so much fun. Cannot wait to have you back again. Thank you for coming back on. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure having you. We love you. Um, but tell our listeners where they can find more of you. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Judy Squirrels, and um, you can find my writing all over the place. Amazing. Joe, where can they find more of you? Sure, I'm on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I'm on Letterboxd as Joe Reed, Reed spelled the same way. And I am on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So strap on your red dress, lipstick, and one cowboy boot. He's wearing one cowboy boot in that scene. And uh, write, and uh, be kind by writing us a nice review. <laughs> Uh, that's all for this week. We hope you'll be back for next week uh, for more buzz. <laughs>